Back again for another week of Securiosity, but first, DC Cyber Week presented by CyberScoop is the largest gathering of the cyber community for a week of learning, collaborating, and networking. Register now for DC Cyber Week running from October 21st to October 25th to gain access to interactive sessions hosted by the most prominent players in the cyber community. The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, so this is a critical time to come together and be a part of the conversation, sharpen your skills, expand your professional network, and get ahead of the game. To register, visit dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for August 23rd. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. The scams were plentiful and full of head-scratching details this week. We got a bunch of crazy stories for you. In our interview, we talk with Fred Knapp from CyberGRX about how companies are understanding third-party risk. The business world was quiet this week until it wasn't. Some big deals that we will dive into once we get into our business section, so let's get to it. Hackers using web infrastructure associated with a known North Korean threat group are being a dormant phishing campaign that's targeting the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in at least three countries, as well as a number of research organizations. Researchers from Anomaly found a network of malicious websites that appear to be a login portal for the French Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Foreign and European Affairs of the Slavic Republic, Stanford University, and a UK think tank, among other targets. Each of the targets has focused in some way on North Korea's nuclear efforts or the international sanctions issued as punishment. Greg, give us the full scoop here. So what this looks like is some of the activity here overlaps with the Kim Suki group, uh, uh, also known as APT38, Thallium, I think uh, Palo Alto actually referred to them as Baby Shark at one point this year. I know we talked around the Baby Shark campaign uh, closer to RSA this year. But um, yeah, it looks like they are going after universities that are scheduled to discuss North Korean denuclearization, other organizations that are looking at North Korea's missile program. I mean, this is clearly information that is geared toward a North Korean threat actor. Any idea what they're trying to accomplish? Um, I just think that this is really more rooted in espionage. I mean, this is what nation states do, including North Korea. Uh, North Korea wants all the information it can get around their nuclear program and what the world thinks about it, especially around their missile program. We we know under the Trump administration, that's been uh, a big thing to, to worry about. And it looks like they're trying to get any information in any way they can. Um, Got it. The campaign was found earlier this month, and a lot of the websites that were attached to it were still active. In they were still up. They didn't look like the faked pages, but they were still up as of a couple of days ago when we were close to publishing this. And one of the interesting things too was a phishing domain that was included in Anomaly's findings was a malicious variant that posed a link to Gizmodo, like it looked like a, a Gizmodo CMS login, which is just a wild uh, change compared to, you know, uh, some French think tanks, the Congressional Research Service, Stanford University, and Gizmodo. So it's it's crazy that um, the, the wide range of phishing sites this discovered, but it looks like it was all tied back to gathering information about North Koreans' nuclear plants. 
So Facebook announced Monday a new bounty program in Instagram that will reward users who find and report methods of data scraping, which could result in the illicit collection and exploitation of user data. Facebook first embarked on its own such program following the Cambridge Analytica scandal, but now Instagram is following the same path after a series of reports that detailed how profile information about millions of users is being stored in databases throughout the internet with no accountability. The company did not say how much it will reward researchers. Jen, sounds like this is a lot of cover for the company when they've just had scandal after scandal and they don't want government regulators coming after them. I mean, absolutely, right? You have to protect yourself and this is an obvious way to do it. But, you know, that said, I still go back to the user and, you know, if you're posting on Instagram, I mean, you should expect that it's getting scraped and stored by other people. I also think a lot of this is data that the user doesn't necessarily know is being collected uh, about them. I mean, think how many times you've seen an Instagram ad that it seems to be like, wait a minute, I, I don't think I even searched for this. I, I just was talking about this. Like I wasn't even searching about it. And it's like, uh, are they really listening? Like we, we know that they're not. It's just that's how good their data collection is. Right. So- I, I think, you know, uh, unless you're like diving into the terms of service, which I mean, let's be honest, who does that? Unless you're diving into those terms of service, you don't understand how that data is being collected or what exactly is the data being collected. So, I mean, yeah, it's nice that we have these bounties established here, but uh, I mean, this just seems like low hanging fruit that's meant to appease government regulators. No, it does. And there's certainly more that could be done. But it's I think if we do it on the internet, we should just consider it to be public data and, and act accordingly. Yeah, it's a shame it's gotten to this point. So the Texas Department of Information Resources has been responding to a widespread ransom attack that has affected upward of 20 local government organizations across the state. Department spokesman Elliot Sprague said the agency was still gathering a full list of communities targeted by the incident and the specific IT systems impacted. The type of malware used and ransoms demanded have not been identified, though it was described as situation as coordinated operation. Sprehe also said the ransomware incident appeared to be limited to local governments and that state IT operations were not hit. So, Craig, that was a huge problem all week. What more do you know? So experts have speculated as to the type of ransomware as this has continued throughout the week. Some say it's Soda Nakibi, uh, which is a variant of Gan Crab, which is something that we've talked about before. And then others are saying it's yet another case of Ryuk. And I believe Ryuk has been responsible for a lot of the recent attacks on cities that we've seen, like down in Florida. I think Ryuk actually was part of what happened in Atlanta too. So um, it's one of the more costly and destructive forms of ransomware that's being used. But uh, it's evident that you know this latest string of ongoing attacks, uh, it, it, they're just growing more and more severe. I mean, this looks to be coordinated. This just wasn't one city that was hit. I mean, we're talking about 20 local governments. So it's clear that whoever is responsible for these attacks is getting smarter about it and understands how these uh, local systems are connected or, you know, where the the holes are in, you know, just a bunch of these local systems. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, one big city is one thing, but if you start to get to the level where you can coordinate attacks across cities, then you have a bigger problem than what we've seen in Atlanta or Baltimore or any of the cities that have gone through this. So have they paid out any ransom that we know of? I don't think any ransom was 
paid out. Um, I, I, I think that more and more they, these cities, you know, see what happened in Atlanta and Baltimore and would rather try to go through like remediation processes over what we saw in Florida, where the city council just said, you know, screw it. We have insurance, just pay it out. Let's go get new computers and let's start everything up again. Like that may be one thing if you're a sleepy town in Florida that you can get away with. But, you know, if you have, you know, six, 700,000 people living in your city and above, you can't just cut a check and, and run to Best Buy and go grab some new computers. Like it doesn't work that way. So I think that more and more you're finding these cities and, and, and local municipalities are, are trying to get remediation done as quick as possible over to pay somebody out. Got it. Really interesting to see what states are hit next. So a Nigerian businessman once picked by Forbes Africa as one of the most promising entrepreneurs under 30 has been arrested by the FBI. Obiwane Okiki allegedly ran a fishing operation that stole $11 million from a subsidiary of the industrial agriculture company Caterpillar and $100,000 from Red Wing Shoes. Unitrack Holding, the Caterpillar subsidiary, reported in 2018 that it was victimized in a business email compromise scam in which thieves hacked its chief financial officer, then requested monetary transfers from other employees. FBI agents say they traced the phishing emails to Okiki, known as Invictus Obi, an African entrepreneur with investments in real estate development, energy, and construction projects. Jen, this is certainly a new type of entrepreneur to watch out for. Super interesting. And so wait, he got $11 million from one company and then $100,000 from another? That's how easy it is for business email compromise. You make it look like it comes from a CFO or a C-suite person. And that's, you know, it's just social engineering at its finest. You don't have to hack anything. You don't have to launch any malware. You don't have to compromise anything. It's literally sending an email like you and I do all day that just makes it look like you're somebody important. Hey, wire those funds to this bank account and off you go. $11 million just seems like a, just an extraordinary amount of money um, to get wired based on an email. Yeah, I I, I guess. I, I, I do not know. I, <laughs> fortunately, I am not re- fortunately for my company, I am not responsible for the, the, the transfer of money. Uh, accounting's not my thing. I mean, same here, so, but it just seems like a, I don't know, it just seems like a big amount to me. Um, you know, especially in comparison to like the 100K that, that Red Wing Shoes um, lost in all this, that seems like a more reasonable chunk of change. Yeah, I mean, we just saw we we talked about it last month. The the Treasury Department put out a report that said more than three hundred million dollars a month is lost due to business email compromise. So Amazing. it's it's one of the easiest scams. I mean, literally, you, you the, the, there's no code. There's it's just social engineering and an email. It's I mean, it's easier than phishing. There's no clicking on links. There's no anything. It's just make that email believable and watch the money leave. I mean, you you do run the risk of being arrested, but right at the same time, it's risk reward, I guess. Yeah, I wonder, you know, with that big number sort of coming out and and showing how easy it is, because I guess I never would have thought it was that big until we we talked about it last month. I wonder if that brings more people out to um, apply the scam and that number just consistently increases or will it make people more aware and ask more questions 
before they wire money from an email. Yeah, I think you're going to see the number grow and then people are starting to pay attention and then people understand that, wait a minute, do I really want to wire? Like, why is my boss telling me to wire $25 million at this random time of the day? Like, this seems weird. This shouldn't be done that way. So on top of that, the U.S. Department of Justice on Thursday unsealed charges against 80 people for their alleged involvement in email scams that defrauded victims out of at least $6 million and attempted to steal another 40. The indictment, initially filed on June 27th, lays out a complex web of money laundering, identity theft, and the internet fraud campaigns, including alleged business email compromise scams. At the nexus of this operation, the co-conspirators answered requests for bank account information, provided that data to others, and then laundered money from victims in exchange for a fraction of the stolen cash. (laughs) So this one blows away the other one, yeah? Yeah, this is a a huge one that dropped um, earlier Thursday. Uh, I, I believe a lot of it was originating from California. Uh, It's a 145-page indictment, includes more than 400 overt acts that uh, outline the email fraud scheme. And yeah, uh, again, business email compromise scams. Um, It was- Now, were these 80 people, um, were they located in the United States or were they located all over the world or what what was the origin here? So yeah, this is the way uh, that it it worked. Um, Two of the co-conspirators- would like open bank accounts and then run a business email compromise scam or even like a romance scam. Like think of like, oh, uh, I, I love you. I want to come to you to the United States to live with you and let's get married. But first you have to wire me 10 grand or something like that. And apparently people still fall for that too. So a few times a week, uh, various participants would say they needed an account to stash 35 grand and then two days later, the, the co-conspirators would respond with an account number and routing number and tell people how to send the funds. And this was all over at different banks, um, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. And then they would split it up between the people that were moving the money. 40% of the proceeds would go to the person that started the scheme. Uh, another 40% would go to the person who was daring enough to open the bank account. And the two top people on top of the chain would split the remaining 20%. Um, it was just, I mean, it brought in, like we said, tons of money. Like we're talking $6 million and then a- attempted another $40 million. It, I mean, it's nuts. And this did bounce around uh, all over the place. It, it went between... Um, I, I believe some of the defendants were based in Nigeria. So you're talking Africa and uh, the US. It was just money all over the place. I'm sure this was a worldwide thing. I mean, that's really impressive. And in a lot of details to sort of get through to, to come at the money. So then I'm impressed. Right. And hey, the scams did not stop this week. Another one, the Justice Department indicted five people this week who allegedly used stolen personal data from veterans and military personnel, many of them elderly, to steal millions of dollars. The scam began when one of the defendants was working as a technician on a U.S. military base. He allegedly took photos of service members' personal data, sent it to accomplices in the Philippines, then directed the cash to money mules waiting in the U.S., 
One of the made fraud techniques was to compromise victims' Defense Department self-service logon portals, which military personnel to use to access more than 70 websites and maintain financial information. Outsiders could just change bank account information and routing numbers and intercept other payments that were going through the portal. Jen, this is rough. That's really rough. I mean, wow. This one, that's that's pretty bad. You got to be. This is some scumbag stuff. I mean, you're stealing payments from elderly veterans. That I mean, come on, man. Like that's just. It's awful. The counts here, I mean, hit everything. Conspiracy, wire thawed, aggravated identity theft, which I would love to know the difference between just plain identity theft and aggravated identity theft, but I, I can see that this was more extreme. So uh, obviously the aggravated identity theft seems to work. Um, I'm surprised someone wouldn't just go after sort of bigger fish, if you will. I mean, go after corporations that can wire $11 million at a time versus, you know, the, the small um, amounts of money this must be. Yeah, it, it, I'm just, I, th- this just makes me sad just to read. Like this is, absolutely. It, yeah. it, it's pathetic. And again, you're stealing them from elderly military personnel. Like, come on, this is, it. it is, it's, it's, Disgusting, pathetic, and uh, if they if they're found guilty, I, I hope they go away for a long time. Yeah, I mean, there's just no, um, you know, I always think half of the 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 scams here are sort of um, to make a name for yourself, and I just this is the last way to do it. Yeah, this isn't like hackers trying to one up each other for clout on the internet. Like this is just petty, pathetic theft. Like, yeah. Just let's move on. <laughs> I can't talk about this anymore. Yeah, let's, let's move on. So Chinese cyber espionage groups have singled out foreign cancer research organizations in a bid to put a dent in the country's soaring disease rate. That is the big takeaway from a report released on Wednesday by FireEye on how spies and crooks have targeted healthcare organizations. In at least one case, more than one Chinese hacking group has gone after the same organization, evidence of a relentless pursuit of research data. China is the most prolific alleged state-sponsored healthcare focused espionage to feature in the FireEye report, but not the only one. Russian and Vietnamese groups also earned a mention in the research. Greg, intellectual property really has no limits. Yeah, um, this is. It doesn't matter if it's you know aviation stuff, military stuff, um, technology, code, cancer research. Also, right in line with. Uh, just China and corporate espionage. I mean, it, it, it looks for a couple of years they've been doing this with their various uh, intelligence groups. Uh, in late 2017, APT-10, um, which also known as Cloud Hopper, went on an expedition against healthcare organizations in, in Japan, particularly looking for information dealing with cancer research conferences. And um, I mean... This is just healthcare data is a, a big, big target. So, um, and this is just worldwide too. I mean, think about it. We talked about it in early episodes of Securiosity. There was an incident in Singapore where hackers accessed personal information on 1.5 million patients. And that looked like it was a result of, uh, you know, a foreign government nation state hacking group. So, um, 
in that report that came out this week, Fire, I said the Singapore breach looked like a Chinese espionage group. So yeah, this is what China does. It doesn't doesn't matter. If if they can find a way to build off of it within their own country, they're just going to go out, hack, steal it, and put it into their society. This is what they do. Um, th- no stone left unturned by these Chinese hacking groups. I mean, on the... On the upside of this story, if they can take that research and they can build on it in some way and they can find a cure, I mean, that's amazing. But somehow I don't think that's what's going on here. Yeah, I I, I don't think that's what's going on here either. I don't think China is looking to beat us to or beat anybody else to a cure. I just think they're looking for cheap ways to boost their own health care. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So the chief of U.S. Army Cyber Command said this week he wants Army Cyber Command to take on a new name, the Army Information Warfare Command, to better represent the workforce's focus moving forward. At a tactical level, the proposal is to place a full-time crew of cybersecurity professionals from electronic warfare experts to information warfare experts with each commander in the Army throughout the Corps, divisions, and brigade combat teams. The commander says this will make it so that cyber expertise is already baked in with commanders in their operations and will allow for commanders to make decisions faster. But according to a Government Accountability Office report issued earlier this month, the Army has so far been creating cyber units at an accelerated pace without addressing the new unit's training and equipment needs at the same time, and similar efforts to add cyber expertise in the Army have been missing staffing goals. So Jen, what do you think of the name shift? I like Army Cyber Command better. The new name just makes me think um, that we're going to war. Yeah, the uh, I, I I don't get what necessarily you change in calling this Army Information Warfare Command. I mean, it's the same thing, and I, I've seen some mixed reaction, but it's almost the mixed reaction to using the term information security and cybersecurity overall. Everybody that hates the term cyber right. is like, great, good, l- let's just. Uh, get rid of this. But um, I mean, I I really don't think it matters. But if this leads to, you know, uh, a bigger internal push and, you know, just a better focus moving forward, then sure. I mean, this is what we've seen from the military since the the, the NSA sort of had their big shift. Um, They want to get cyber more integrated in just about everything. So if this helps cyber get integrated in the army, so be it. That's cool. I just don't think you need a name change for it. A years-long project from researchers at the NSA that could better protect machines from firmware attacks will soon be available to the public. The project will increase security of machines by essentially placing a machine's firmware in a container to isolate it from would-be attackers. A layer of protection is being added to the System Management Interrupt SMI handler code that allows a machine to make adjustments on the hardware level as part of the open-source firmware platform Coreboot. The end product, known as the SMI Transfer Monitor, with protected execution, will work with x86 processors that run Coreboot. This addition to the open-source project comes as attackers are increasingly targeting firmware in order to run malicious attacks. Greg, more details, please. Yeah, so this is a nerdy story. I, mean, I know cybersecurity overall can get nerdy, but this one is like for the, the, the yeah the true nerds. We're talking about uh, firmware here. That look, uh, firmware attacks are really, really uh, 
they're they're just in a nation state, but they are you know very very interesting and and they have researchers worried because there's no way to really detect uh, an attack on the firmware level. I mean, just last year, the first ever documented uh, UEFI rootkit was de- deployed in the wild. So um, this research coming from the NSA, it really does add a layer to protection that we haven't seen before. I, I mean, it was funny. I was actually talking to some independent researchers about this story in the run-up to us publishing it. And they were like, oh my God, this is this is really, really interesting. I want to see this. Uh, this is something that uh, we've been tracking for a while. And I know that the lead researcher uh, from the NSA on this, Eugene Myers, has published some papers on it and has really been the leader for this. But um, the cool thing about this too is it's going to be open source. And the thing that is cool about that is it's not only going to work on the Microsoft Windows firmware, it's going to work on Linux firmware as well, which is really, really interesting because the NSA's version is Windows, but there's a way that if people go, "Ah, you know what, I really don't trust what the NSA is doing here, they can turn around, build on top of it, put it in their Linux systems and have the same firmware protection without, you know, any sort of paranoid worry that there's some type of intelligence backdoor in it. So, um, yeah, uh, a really, really um, nerdy but cool and and interesting project coming out of the NSA. I would suggest to anybody that wants to check it out. It's the lead story on CyberScoop right now. Uh, we link to uh, Meyer's work as well. Something to really, really dive into awesome. if you care about firmware attacks. I would say I would read it, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, I have read it a couple times. I mean, I I have a cursory knowledge of it, which was more than I could say I had at, at the beginning of the week. Uh, I, I talked to a bunch of researchers who walked me through how all of this works, some really interesting stuff, Got it. but it's, it's still, it, it's not an easy thing to grasp that I will say. So on the business side of things, Perimeter X, the company that protects the world's largest and most reputable websites from malicious activities, announced the acquisition of PageSeal, a pioneer in client-side protection. PageDefender has a product that blocks unwanted ads and browser extensions from redirecting web visitors to other bad malicious things and results in more revenue for e-commerce sites. Remediant, a leading provider of privileged access management software, announced it has received $15 million in a Series A investment round. Dell Technologies Capital and ForgePoint Capital led the round. Splunk, the publicly traded data analysis company, announced on Wednesday its plans to purchase SignalFX for $1.5 billion. SignalFX is a cloud monitoring company that will help Splunk watch for possible breach incidents, data exposures, and other anomalies in the cloud. And then as we were going to tape this, a huge announcement. Uh, VMware said it's a wiring Carbon Black at a value of $2.1 billion. The deal is expected to close by the end of 2020, and it just is another bullet point in the great consolidation that is coming to the cybersecurity market. Jen, what do you think? I think that's a huge amount of money. What have we seen um, in the billions that's above this Carbon Black acquisition? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I think that the the semantic deal, the semantic Broadcom deal from uh, a couple weeks ago, that was around 10, I think. I think that was around 10 billion. So 
Um, but I feel like there's not a lot in the billions, right? I mean, I think it's a small club of cybersecurity companies. Right. And they're acquired in the billions by other cybersecurity companies. Right. And I mean, we talked about this story last week in that um, it, it's just this race to the top. Uh, these companies, these larger companies, and not just cybersecurity companies overall. We're talking about, you know, the Dells of the world, the Cisco's of the world. They want to be the first, uh, you know, holistic cybersecurity company. And Obviously, this makes sense for uh, Dell VM. Well, VMware is its own company under the Dell umbrella, but it's clear that, you know, gobble up what you can because, um, you know, there's not going to be a lot left, I feel like, by the end of the year. I mean, look at everything that's happened uh, over the past three months. Um, So if there's a company out there on the block, um, you know, Go get it because uh, the the pickings are starting to be slim. True. Well, what do you think about this uh, Remediant company? Uh, What about these companies in this privilege access management space? We haven't really looked at a a ton of companies in exactly this space. Um, I'm guessing that the Dell um, has a strategic interest in this, um, given that it's one of the funders, um, which is always interesting. Okay, now to our interview with Fred Knight. Fred Knight is the CEO of CyberGRX. Uh, we talked to Fred out of Black Hat. We talked about third-party risk. His company helps other small and medium businesses deal with third-party risk. Everybody's always so worried about the software supply chain. We talked to Fred to how he talks to companies about handling that. Check it out. Okay, now we're joined by Fred Knight, CEO and founder of CyberGRX. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. So most security professionals are no longer on the fence about the risk that third parties can bring into an organization. And I know that CyberGRX and third-party risk, that's what you guys do. So let's talk about this issue in that it doesn't really start or end at a SOC. What makes the management of third-party risk so complicated? There are a lot of things to factor in, but I think one of it is really the size of the problem. As you think about how companies have grown and the way they operate over the last, call it, 10 years or so, the kind of surface area has massively expanded in terms of uh, companies that they work with, uh, suppliers. You know, rarely do people build their own things anymore. They use Foxconn. They use other outsourced providers. They're, no one is cutting their own checks today. They actually use ADP, et cetera. And that has massively uh, grown. What's happened, though, is programs that if they were in place at all, were designed to address a small number of third parties, do not scale to cover that. And so the issue you have is, um, you know, when someone was assessing 40 third parties, you can have a single person go do that and actually run through a pretty robust process. When that's 400 or 4,000, or in some cases 40,000, that's no longer tenable. Um, That then has played out over the last, call it five years in particular, hackers paid attention. And you'll see now over 50% of breaches involve or originate from a third party. They basically said, okay, if you spend your time protecting your environment, we're going to go after the path of least resistance and use that as a means to get in or to find your data. So coming back to what's the, one is you have kind of an outdated approach that people have not had and had the tools to really scale and uh, a increasing, um, I guess, exposure and and, uh, incidence rate that's happening there. So you're getting more and more pressure. You're getting board pressure now from what are we doing around third party? Um, One of the things that's been exciting for us over the last year or so is we are getting you know, Fortune 10 companies coming to us and saying, it's time for us to really pay attention to this and build a program that we had four people doing it. We need the equivalent of 
30 people doing this, how can you help us scale up? And uh, part of what CyberGRX has done is we're truly one of the only solutions out there that allows you to scale a true program around third-party risk. So one of the other challenges I imagine is that third parties are tend to be different sizes, different shapes, sure. look different. What else is involved in that? Well, so it's exactly right. So one is there is a, a one-size-fits-all approach, which some people applied and what they've done is said, okay, we'll risk rank them in some way and say, these guys we do every year, these guys every two years, these guys every five years, et cetera. And anyone who plays in this environment knows every five years is really not that helpful. Uh, <laughs> and, so a, um, and so you're absolutely right. One of the key components of this is really understanding from an inherent risk standpoint, um, who should I be paying the most attention to? Who is that? One of the defaults people have done without the right program place is said, who do I spend the most money with? But that's not always the case of the people who are the highest risk. Right. And if you want to actually do that correctly, though, it's a pretty daunting task. If you have, let's call it 5,000 third parties, and you want to understand who should I spend if I can have the budget or the time to do 100 assessments, I want to know who touches my network. Who do I give confidential information to? Who do, you know, but some of these guys have been working with you know for ten years. I don't know. I have to go talk to the business. I have to talk to five thousand business owners to be able to answer those questions. And no security team is able to do that in a good way. So they've actually been kind of stalled or paused. What you've seen the majority of companies do is what I call a stop the bleeding approach. They'll say, okay, we're going to start now and look at any new company coming in. They're going to go through this whole robust process and we're going to do an evaluation, which is great. And that actually helps and you can actually do a prioritization. But you have ignored this legacy situation, which is probably where the majority of the risk lies. One of the things that you know we hadn't appreciated how big that was when we first started the company. And then recently we've brought some features that automate a way to do that, effectively leveraging the crowd, uh, the crowdsourced or the, the exchange concept of CyberGRX, the kind of one-to-many where many customers are using third parties, we can use that as a proxy for how you might be using that same third party. So I can help you come up with a first pass at 5,000 in a single instant and say, okay, great, give us five. Here's how everyone else might be using ADP and use that as a default, et cetera. And that's opened up a whole new way for people to address this problem. And literally in the last six months, we've seen you know, huge organizations say, it's, I can now address this problem of several thousand. We had one company that came with over 100,000 third parties. They didn't even know where to begin. So. so do you often find that new customers come on board and they have no idea how many third-party vendors they have? A lot more than you would expect, yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it ranges from those who say, I truly don't know, to those who say, I have a list, but I've never risk-ranked or prioritized. You know, we've, uh, on uh, in one occasion, we've kind of gone through the company and we helped them take out, like, Bob Dylan was listed as a third-party. These guys, they just, they've never actually listed out like, who I... <laughs> Bob Dylan? What they did is they pulled from their AP system. They said, here's who we've paid. They must be a vendor or supplier of some kind. And they paid Bob Dylan to do a concert or some of that sort of thing. Okay, so that interesting third-party risk there. That's okay. how much, but that's, that's where they're starting from. So okay. they need to move. To, like, if you want to run a program, you've got limited resources. You can't be doing an assessment and all that. So you need to really call that down and say, okay, who are my highest risk, medium risk, lower risk, and the ones I shouldn't be spending as so much time? And then the other piece of this is you don't want to just apply the same assessment to every one of them. The highest risk, you want to spend a fair amount of time. You want to do a real validation and make sure that data is accurate. Um, for the medium or lower risk, maybe a self-attestation is appropriate. And man, that's one-tenth the cost. So it's much more scalable for you to be able to address that versus I'm going to do everything, you know, go out and on-site visit for everyone who's up in that list. What kinds of surprises have you run into in regards to like third-party risk? 
Besides Bob Dylan. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, he's, he's risky, though. You gotta be careful. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, it's, it's almost a, uh, I wouldn't say kind of, it's a, a, a less exciting surprise, or, or in, is really how prevalent the lack of basic hygiene is. When you think about, you know, the key elements, and, and I read a statistic the other day that it was something like 85% or so of the breaches reported last year could have been prevented with basic uh, vulnerability management and patching. And so if you think about that uh, in your environment, then what about all the third parties you're dealing with? Right. And just saying, wow, if you realize just that alone and how prevalent that is and how much of an issue that is and how easily that is addressed. And so it's remarkable how you see that kind of across the board. The other surprise or insight that I think is, is you know, people always say, oh, our highest risk vendors are AWS and GitHub and Salesforce. And, and those guys have pretty robust programs. Right. Where, where the interesting concentration of risk for me is kind of when you get to that kind of next threshold or tier, it's a mid-sized marketing tool that you're sending all of your customer data to who's never paid attention. It's a AI-based chatbot. It's some analytics tool, whatever it is, or something that has a direct line into your network that you never paid attention to. It's not necessarily the DeFazio air conditioning that hurt Target, but it's more these kind of mid-tier that is a truly integrated technology solution, but perhaps outside that threshold where you've evaluated them before. Uh, that really there's a massive concentration of exposure. Uh, even more recently, um, I think it was like the Dragonfly attacks and the kind of critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you look at the notes that they have from the hackers, they're like, their specific approach was find the third parties. Who are the SCADA providers and such that we can use to get access into the utility networks? And those are that kind of below the bubble threshold companies that they exploited to, to go for versus a direct attack on any given utility. So with regards to the, you know, Ranking the way that this yeah. risk sort of manifests. As a CISO, what do you do when you start getting down to you know the, the fine grains in in the rankings? Being like, okay, this might be this service, or we run the risk here where our grade might be a B minus. But if we use these products or we switch to this, we might be a B. Is that? something that scissors are doing and is that an acceptable level because to me i run through that scenario and i say well i'm still pretty like i, I want to be at an a overall sure. so well, what am i you know what am i doing to really make a dent in my third-party risk and is that even a scenario that scissors go through or am i just making something up and i'm no there are actually some who are very so you know if you look in the third-party risk market there are a lot of companies out there that are doing these the security ratings like bitsite security scorecard right. risk recon etc and those are all an outside-in scan that culminates in a score of some kind. And some people are very obsessive about it because they've done a phenomenal job of getting that into the common vernacular and everyone's like, oh, what's your bit side score? Whatever it is. And you know, if that changes, you, know, you need to explain it and understand that. Um, that's, we think of that as a great prioritization. It's a good tool to help identify, but it's not a decisionable set of information because it's, it, it stops at the firewall. You actually haven't spoken to the company. You haven't gone into detail around their program. And so obsessing over that score is one thing, but you also see a lot of people will um, not use it to make a risk evaluation, but more of an ongoing monitoring tool. Say, okay, I want to understand. I don't care if it was an A or a B, but if it dropped from A to B, I want to know why. But, and then they'll use a, a more thorough assessment to decide whether or not to move forward. What you should be focusing on actually is building kind of the, the broader program itself, using okay. a CyberGRX assessment or other, you know, throws it having, you know, you've got Deloitte come on site, whoever needed to do that for you. Um, that will help define what a robust program looks like. There are all sorts of nuances and such that go into some of these outside-in scores that if you spent your time trying to just gain that the whole time, that's not the best use of resources. So 
you know, you, you brought up AWS uh, a couple times and, and the maturity there, and we saw what happened with Capital One. Capital One is, you know, regarded as a fairly smart company when it comes sure. to security. AWS, everybody likes AWS, but I mean, still you look at identity and access management rules, they're, they're very hard to get right, and it's clear that that was part of the reason that the Capital One breach happened. Um, when you're looking at it from a third party risk assessment, you know, how does incidents like Capital One, where you had a mature company, and you're talking about a mature service, really factor into the way companies are looking at their third-party risk moving forward, because there's always that risk that something could go wrong, no matter how high they get on one of these scorecards. Sure, and, and that's I mean, it, it's a clear understanding of an assessment, or it's it's probabilistic reduction. There's no secure. Oh, now we are secure. Let's move on. It's, yeah, you're not going to you, get you to that point. You can't do that. Right? You have to say, but okay, well, let me understand what that landscape is. Let me understand what those risks are, and I can make an informed risk-based decision. And that's. That's the goal, I believe, the goal of a CISO. It's not to say yes or no, it's to say, business unit, if you're gonna move forward with a third party, you should know what the exposure this is creating and what could potential mitigants we have for that to drive that down and make it a kind of acceptable level. And we can choose to either move forward, we can choose to ask them to fix something, or we can put our own controls in place to gate that. But if you can have an informed conversation there, that's success enables the business to move forward. Some, some CISOs will be like, no, I said no, it wasn't good enough. It was a C or whatever. Okay, that doesn't really help, and then people work right. around you, actually. Right. And so um, and it, kind of, it breaks down in that sense. Back to the specific Capital One example, interestingly, what you have, and this is a broader cloud migration issue, is you know I've heard many people say things like, oh, we use AWS, they're secure. No, they, eh, well. no, 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 they're not. What, AWS is a different way of running your network. Right. It still requires you to build a security program on top of it. Right. It enables you to do all sorts of cool stuff. The, some of the rules and capabilities within AWS are great. But when you read about an exposed S3 bucket, that means someone didn't configure it correctly. It's right. not an AWS issue. That's a user issue. And similarly, in the Capital One situation, like this wasn't necessarily an AWS. This was actually how do they configure, how do they have the access for this one individual or whoever was able to get in there. Right. Um, I can't speak to Capital One's you know, the maturity in that sense, right. but it's a, it is an element of one understanding, okay, what are the capabilities that exist with someone like AWS, how can I use that, and then do I have the right tools and, and capabilities to run that? If I'm evaluating Capital One, I want to understand their access management controls that they use to apply to their cloud infrastructure. So do you ever recommend to get rid of certain vendors as you go through this process? Once again, we, um, we don't, we don't basically want to tell people what to do and say, like, bad, get them out of here. What we're saying I mean, is... but sometimes... Sometimes the answer is readily apparent from yeah. the assessment that yeah, we provide. It, it, I'm guessing you don't have to go that far. It's, <laughs> but it's right there in and, blinking and, lights. And once yeah. again, interesting, in, um, you know, most of the regulatory standards will say you can't outsource the decision. You can outsource the collection of information. Right. But you have to still own that decision. You can't be like, CyberJax told us no. Um, and so, <laughs> but we'll highlight here are the gaps. Then you have to make a decision whether or not to move forward. If you're a smaller organization and you don't have the, and it's you're you know critically reliant on someone, you right. make some exceptions. And what you have to do is okay. Now, how do I build guardrails around this? Um, or you say, you know what, time for them to move on. We do have some customers who have basically been able to go back. I talked about that kind of that legacy pool. They're able to look back at that pool and say, hey, we never did assessments to these companies. I've now done that. I realize I have 27 law firms and we're spending over a million dollars with each one. And these three at the bottom are a disaster. I'm going to reach out to them and say either fix or they're off. And we've seen people do that before. Okay, so Fred, we like to end these interviews on random questions, but since we're here at Black Hat and everybody's talking about cybersecurity, and we're talking to cybersecurity professionals, uh, we're interested in hearing about what you do 
on a personal level to guard against yourself. Obviously, you don't have to go too granular. We don't want to, you know, actually give away the keys to your kingdom. But at the same time, what are some of the things that you do to protect yourself? So it's um, it's interesting. It's uh, applying some of the same learnings from doing assessments of companies. Is there are basic hygiene elements to, to follow that when uh, when followed, you eliminate the kind of the drive-by risks. It kind of the where you know wide open. So if you you know one is use a different password in every situation. Like if you use the same password and it's compromised on Facebook for some reason, they're going to take it and apply it to every other, you know, thing out there. And guess what? Your Wells Fargo account just got compromised. Right. And so change it. It's so easy to use LastPass, 1Password, any of these, these tools out there to kind of manage that. So that's one critical component there. I'm hyper paranoid on opening anything, basically, in okay. terms of attachments and email and stuff. Once again, basically, if it's you know something from a friend, of course, but it's a you know my mother sends me these random forwards and I just delete them. Been there, and so sorry if she's listening, but uh, <laughs> but no, and so it is the basic hygiene elements around that, and it's being also one of the things that's really interesting to me is being very cognizant of what you're enabling. And no one ever reads the uh, terms and conditions. Of course. But right. it's getting a sense of that. You know, you can look on an iPhone, like, who has access to my location data? And you'll be like, what the hell? Why is that? And, and turn it off. Like, you don't need to do that. Or who has access to my mic? Like, one of the things that blew me away was that, was that, that uh, uh, soccer um, club that was actually turning on people's microphones to listen at the bar to see if they were watching a game. Oh, I think that was La Liga. Like, uh, yeah, I think, like, or the, the Mexican. To me, uh, if there's a wake-up call, yeah. like, that's terrifying. Uh, and so, you know, that's also just a permission thing. You can manage that quite easily. So I'm somewhat religious on that. And then I update my software the second a patch comes out yeah. on anything. So you would, um, you just mentioned, you know, not opening attachments, but, you know, Greg and I both have jobs where we tend to have to open attachments. Mine will be companies they don't know sending me their executive summary or pitch deck yeah. um, for investment. Greg, maybe a, a story. Um what would you recommend people do in that scenario where they actually have to open attachments from strangers? No, it, it, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't mean never open attachment. Right. But if it's you know someone sent someone you've never heard of, hey, take a look at this. Like maybe take a minute to verify that that actually is someone you want to be talking to. Right. If it's uh, if it's you know if it's the click here to pick up your FedEx package, like no, I'm not opening that. Oh, I was uh, that. <laughs> exactly. But uh, you know those ty- those types of things. Yeah. But yes, of course you're going to have to at some point and going through in that sense. But you know, just being cognizant of it and that that alone will cut out ninety plus percent of the risk. Uh, and then the other components is you know constantly updating and paying attention. You can use a variety of different um, uh, virus protection tools and other kind of scanners just to make sure that there isn't something. Better. Great. Fred, really appreciate you uh, hopping aboard with us. Thanks, Fred. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks again to Fred for joining us. Really interesting conversation. And we will see you in two weeks. We're going to take a break for the Labor Day weekend. Everybody recharge their batteries. Get ready to head into the fall. Going to be a busy fall. Hope to see you at DC Cyber Week. Stay curious.